kind of leads us into what was on my heart tonight in First uh, Corinthians. I hope to encourage all of you. Um, I, I, I've been talking a lot this week about death, and uh, it's not an easy subject to talk about. It's not a fun one, certainly. Um, I was call, I was pressure washing my roof Tuesday afternoon, or this would have been morning, when I got the frantic call to come down to the school because Coach Weber had passed away, and and could you talk to some people? Could you cover this class? And and so I've been doing that this week. Uh, of course, the students are kind of shook. Um, they did not expect this. I mean, nobody did. But um, and so I've been thinking about death a lot this week. I've been uh, uh, maybe more than a thirty-year-old should, but I, I think it's important. Um, and in verse fifty. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, I tell you, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and he quotes uh, several prophets here. The first one he quotes is Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up in victory, and then he quotes the prophet Hosea, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us through the victory, uh, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so this is the text that's been on my heart this week. Um, simply put, that if your faith is in Christ, then death has lost its power. But let's explore this for just a moment. So looking back up at verse 50, Paul tells us right away, brethren, I'm talking to Christians, the church, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And the reason he does this is the city of Corinth, where this first letter of Corinthians was written to, was a church planted by Paul in Acts. And he's writing a letter back to address issues that he has heard about. Because Corinth, it, the best city we could use as an analogy would be New Orleans. Corinth was a port city, but it was also a city known for its nightlife and its, uh, shall we say, impropriety. And so Corinth was a place where not only was it on a port city, but it was through major trade routes. And so you had influences coming in from the pagan north, bringing false idols in. And people, Christians, are getting confused because they're seeing these other gods coming in. And we have to put ourselves in the, in the context. They could not text Paul and be like, hey, Paul, what's, what's the deal with these other gods? Like, what should we do? So they're trying to handle this on their own in some ways. And they, they, do, so, they do well in some areas. They fail in some other areas. And one thing that they had done was they had gotten this false teaching that they could separate the spirit from the body. Now, that is to say that they thought that, well, if I sin with my body physically, that's not really my spirit sinning, so it's not really sinning against God. And so you had sexual morality, you had people marrying their own stepmothers, you had this kind of stuff that Paul addresses in Corinth. And he's saying that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What you do in the flesh does have an impact you cannot simply let your flesh run wild and expect that I will get into the kingdom of God with no consequences. He says flesh and blood are not going to inherit it. 
they cannot have it, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So that which is dying, this, this flesh body, is corrupted and wasting, and it's leading toward death. Uh, the Greek word for flesh is the word sarx, and it's where we get the word root for sarcophagus. And this is a gruesome image, but I think it's applicable. It's literally saying, it, it's loosely translated, the coffin that eats. That's this flesh body. It is a, it is a coffin, it, is, it represents death, and it is slowly wasting away. It's slowly being eaten by time. And, and you know, I, we, we look at our beautiful cemetery out behind Baptist Church, we would not dare to dig up one of those coffins for what we would find inside. Depending on the length of time, uh, it would either be remains or dust, as we know we'll return to. So he's saying that this perishable body cannot inherit imperishable. You cannot receive immortality by deeds of the flesh. And this is something else the Corinthians were mistaken about. They also believe that if I do right, if I just do enough good works of the Spirit, then I can also earn my way into heaven. And of course, Paul says, no, you cannot earn Jesus. You cannot buy Christ. In fact, and it's amazing to me, why would you want to? I've, I've been able to talk to a Jehovah's Witness who they do so much work physically. To be a pioneer minister, you have to do something of around 100 hours every two weeks. Now, these distinctions change over time, so maybe this data is out, outdated, um, but this is the last I heard a couple of years ago. 100 hours. Some of them are doing 90 hours within a single week. And they're literally, and they, in their theology, they believe that there's 144,000 who, who are called the Christ class, and they're the ones who are going to be in heaven. The rest of them, and maybe a few of us, because they kind of think we're confused, that we want God, but we haven't really figured it out yet. It's kind of their view, their view of us. And um, they think that we'll be what's called the great crowd. And so they're doing 90 hours of door-to-door, and they're, they're looking up at they have paintings in their churches of the, of the Christ class with Christ, and they're the great crowd. They think they'll still be on earth after the return of Christ. The 144,000 will go to heaven. None of them are going to heaven. And they're working 90 hours a week, banging on doors, talking to people in hopes of earning a spot on earth. They read Revelation where the new earth comes down, and that's where they think they're going to be. They're earning a spot on a physical earth. They're not even trying to work their way to heaven. They believe I'm working my way to a better earth. And I just can't even imagine. I mean, I'm so grateful that God has freed my mind and soul to know that my faith in him means I will be with him. The Lord who wipes away tears, the God who takes away pain, where there will be no bone spurs or no cancer or anything. I I don't work my way to heaven. And I certainly don't want to work my way to some kind of paradise earth. No, we have an imperishable body that we shall have. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I I heard it said that that verse should be inscribed on the door of the nursery of the church. That we shall not all sleep, (laughs) but we shall all be changed. And uh, and I love that joke. And uh, uh, for those listening on the radio, they're laughing. (laughs) Um, so, So I love this because... We read Revelation, and there are many schools of thought of the book of Revelation, what in Greek is called the Apocalypse of John. And 
there's many people who think certain stages and there's all kinds of ideas. I have my own personal ideas. You can ask me after. <laughs> but here Paul makes reference, and Paul does this several times. He mentions uh, in Thessalonians, we'll meet the Lord in the air. So Paul is referencing end time events very distinctly and clearly, and he's not really making a point about it other than to support his point that death is swallowed by victory. So we can surmise now a little bit about Revelation. That is to say simply, your view of Revelation should fit in with what Paul is plainly saying here. And what does he say? At the last trumpet, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, if you kind of go with my views on Revelation, the, the Jews had feast days, and on the last feast day, the last trumpet would blow, and they would all return home. And I think that that's the same in Revelation. The last trumpet will blow, and we will be returned home with our family, the true spiritual family with God. So Paul's idea here now is that this flesh is going to be destroyed. We shall be changed. Verse 53, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. You cannot take this with you, and it's not going to go with you. I mean, I've heard stories of, of funerals where, where, where people are coming to the body, and not only does the body have his possessions in the coffin with him, but friends are actually throwing in cash and throwing in gold watches, and you're going to need this with you, buddy, friend. And they're deceived, and they're, they're deceived because they think, oh, there'll be something after. I don't really know what it is. I don't really believe in anything after, but this is where you know, I'm going to go. It's false. And it's, it's false because it, it, they don't have the truth. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 54, when the perishable does put on the imperishable and the mortal does put on immortality, then it shall come to pass that death is swallowed up in victory. And we see this in Revelation where depending on your view of the millennial reign there, where it's, God is depicted on earth for a thousand years, the devil is released from his prison. He, he gathers an army. He comes to the saints and God rains fire from heaven and destroys him. Wipes out his army. Takes the devil and casts him into the lake of fire. Death is swallowed up in victory. And that's why he can quote Hosea and say, verse 55, Oh, death, where is your victory? I mean, if you can imagine standing on the, the battlefield of that great city one day, and the, the devil and his armies are coming across that field, and God destroys them with holy fire, Oh, death, where is your victory? And we stand here now with the same mindset, or we should. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? I mean, you can almost imagine that, that, that death is as, as a coiled rattlesnake underneath a rock that you might lift up to, in your garden and strikes you. And that venom now that enters your bloodstream, that is going to be a death for you. And sin is the same way. Sin strikes us and it destroys this mortal body. And without salvation in Christ, what happens to our soul? It is cast into the lake of fire as well. But in Christ, through repentance, belief, salvation, as we see even simply with John 3.16, Romans 10.9, our belief in Christ, our faith in him, now means that, that that venom strike does not bring us to death. Rather, it may cause us some suffering for a little while, but it will not result in our spiritual death. This is why Paul, 
on the island after he shipwrecked when the venom's, venomous snake comes out and bites him and all the other prisoners say, aha, see, we knew that he was some kind of bad guy. God tried to kill him on the ocean and he didn't do it, so he sent a snake to get after him. And I love Paul's reaction because what Paul doesn't do is stand up and go, ha, see, you guys are all wrong. Watch this, I'm about to live. Suckers, you know, <laughs> I'm about to do all this great stuff. He doesn't. He's, he's simply gathering firewood to warm these cold and shivering, probably some of them hypothermia prisoners, and he simply shakes off the serpent into the fire and then goes on. No big point about it. No sermon made about it. Just simply goes on. Because Paul believes this. Death is swallowed up in victory. I believe Paul right then was saying, hey, if this is it, okay. Because my death has been swallowed up. And not just by my works or by the world's works or by any miracle of goodness that I have, but rather God has taken away this death and given me victory. This sting cannot hurt me. The sting cannot kill me. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. And it is. You look back at the Old Testament, and, and you can imagine the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus and said, hey, I know you've been telling people that you're the way, the truth, and the life, but uh, I've done all these things, so I'm just checking to make sure I'm good, okay? And this guy had the best trio of combinations, right? He's rich, he's young, which I'm assuming that means handsome too. I don't know. It just you know, it says young. And he's a ruler. He has everything the world is always searching for. I want wealth. I want to be young and, and, and have vitality and just live my life. And I want to be in charge. I want authority. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, keep the law and the commandments. And the rich young ruler goes, aha, I've done it. I have done all these things from my youth. Even as a little kid, I kept the God's commandments. I went to temple every Sabbath. I did everything I was supposed to do. And Jesus says, well, why don't you do this? Sell what you have and give it to the poor. And he can't do it. He goes away sorrowful. He goes away sad. He goes away weeping because he cannot do this one simple thing that Jesus told him to do. And it wouldn't have been hard. There were a lot of poor people in Jerusalem. There were some poor people around them probably right then. That rich young ruler was probably wearing rings that he could have taken off and given to a person in rags right then and fulfilled what Jesus said. But he refuses to do it. The power is of sin is in the law. When all you have is the law, sin has power over you. Because you can't keep all the commandments. Who in here has kept every single one of just the Ten Commandments, not even all 600 and, or, and, and odd commandments of Levitical law. My personal favorite is the, uh, eventually the Pharisees got so legalistic that they believed there was a certain amount of steps that you could take on the Sabbath. And if you took too many steps, then that was work. You were breaking the Sabbath. You're breaking Moses' law. You're, you're a heretic. And I have always joked that what happens if you run out of steps before something important, like supper or the bathroom? <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, I, I have a seven-year-old who's, who's hopped her way to a gas station bathroom, you know, <laughs> in desperation. <laughs> you know, I, I've been there. And so it, it, what, what would happen? The power of sin is in the law. If you're on a road and there is no speed limit, can you be pulled over for speeding? 
we could argue semantics. Even on the Autobahn, you could be pulled over. That's true. But if there's no speed limit, there's no law to catch you, then you can do what you please. But there is a speed limit. And one of my, I, one of my favorite jokes is there's a guy having a terrible day, and uh, he, he gets uh, pulled over by an officer. He was speeding. He was late. And he asked the officer, how'd you even see me? I, I didn't even see you. And the officer pointed up in the air. And the officer knew that they were checking the speed by radar. And they had a helicopter watching this stuff. But the poor man just went, oh, you mean the big guy upstairs is mad at me too? <laughs> it is in the law that sin has power over us. Now, this doesn't make the law bad. The law is good. Jesus didn't say, I came to destroy the law. He came, I, I said, I, I've come to fulfill the law. This is why I disagree with, with pastors who say, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. And I'm like, you would, you would dig out the foundation of your house, wouldn't you? Thinking you don't need it anymore. I got a roof, I got a TV, I got AC. What do I need this concrete for? Dig it out and see what happens, right? He's exactly right. What's going to happen in Florida? It'd be a swamp in your living room <laughs> and the water would come up. The roof would fall in. To dig out your foundation, to dig out the law and remove it from you. No, what we have is completion. Jesus has fulfilled the law. No longer do you have to offer sacrifices because he has been offered. I mean, the book of Hebrews, the entire book is one message. Christ has done it. You couldn't, he can, he did. And all you need, all you need like now is faith in him. So if, you, if sin has power over you, it's because you are struggling in the law and you're trying to fulfill some things that you can't do. You're trying to follow laws you can't keep. And I do this myself. There's laws even now that I struggle with that, oh, I'm still trying to complete this area of my life. When it's not, it doesn't help me. Verse 57, and this is a man who understands. Now, at this point, at the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul is most likely in a prison cell, and um, he's been probably taken to Rome at this point. He probably... It's hard to tell, but he's probably not going to be seeing any of these churches ever again. And this is a man who understands his next verse, verse 57. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love the title, Lord Jesus Christ. As I like to tell students, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a title that he has. It is the Greek word Christos which is from the Hebrew Messiah. So the title, Lord Jesus Christ, is, can be literally said as the supreme Jesus, the Savior. And I love that idea of the supreme Jesus. I, don't know, I just think it sounds cool. Avengers have cool names. I think, that, I think that's a better one. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, I love this word here, immovable. Does a, does a different translation have a different word there? Anybody? Immovable, same word. I love this word because we're told now in our culture that you have to change, that you have to move from your stance, or you have to move off your foundation of belief. You have to change how you've always done things because the new school is coming in, you're outdated, and you need to go. This is what we're being told. I am not particularly proud of my generation that I'm a part of, 
We managed to create Facebook. That was okay. But pretty much everything else has been a little bit. <laughs> and so uh, I'm one of the few in my generation who's, who's actually saying, no, we don't have to be pushed off our strong foundations, not just politically, of our country and our constitution, which I do believe, second to the Bible, is the greatest document written by men. <laughs> uh, of course, God writes the Bible. And we don't have to be pushed off these things. Instead, let us be immovable. Why? Because Christ has already given me victory. He's already removed the sting of death. He's already fulfilled the law that I don't have to, that I could not do. And now I stand simply in the shadow of the cross, rejoicing about an empty tomb, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, so we're talking about in Christ, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, in the plan and will of God, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, and that's very important. Uh, David Lowry says this in his Bible commentary, that as an allusion to Isaiah 25, Paul recalls an Old Testament passage which prophesied the cessation of death, the apparent victories of Satan in the Garden of Eden and on Golgotha were reversed on the cross. This is David Lowry now. And vindicated in the resurrection of Christ. From a certain vantage point of the certain resurrection of the saints, Paul voiced his, voices his taunt against death and Satan. Paul is reveling in the fact that Satan has been defeated and he hasn't even gone to war yet. Because we know from Scripture, Satan roams the earth like a roaring lion. He has not yet attacked God on that great field in Revelation. But even when he does, he will be destroyed. Victory assured. See, I love this. There's not going to be a spiritual boxing match at the end of time where Jesus is in one corner and he's got his boxing gloves on and God is rubbing his shoulders like, all right, son, you got to get in there and take care of this stuff, okay? You got to, it's really going to be a bad ending if you don't win, okay? That's not what's going to happen. This is not a Rocky movie. Jesus is not even going to defeat him. I love in Revelation, they send Michael, the archangel, to take care of their light work. Because God can't even be bothered to get off his holy throne to mess with Satan because Satan is not worth his time. I love that image. I love the image of God being like, I'm not even getting up. Like, I don't, I don't even have to get off of my chair. You are defeated. See, in the human world, we have to get up out of our chairs to get stuff done, don't we? And when somebody's running their mouth about us, we got to get up and go to, go to war, right? God says, I'm not even getting up. Hey, Michael, go take care of that for me. <laughs> Death came as a result of man's rebellion and disobedience against the command of God. The law which epitomized that command of God was thus mirrored against the human rebellion and disobedience. Like the first Adam, we all fell into sin. But because of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, we now come into victory. And there's one last thing I want to encourage you with. I'm, I wasn't going to keep you guys very long tonight, mostly because I had two hours to put this together today. <laughs> I love the very end here of this chapter, verse 58, that your labor is not in vain. Just think about this one text for a minute. How often does it feel like I labor and I labor and when's this job going to be over? It's easy when Brother Terry finishes a roof because he can put a stamp on it, final screw, done but there are some labors that there's no end. And it's hard to know, when am I getting off this thing? I'm in the heat, it's hot, I'm, I'm almost done. 
Lord, when is the time? And we don't know. God reserves it for himself, the day that those trumpets will sound, the day when Satan will be destroyed, the day that he's going to bring us home with him. But this is what I love. So at the very end there, it says, your labor is not in vain. And the word vain is the Greek word kinos, and it means a great emptiness, a great separation, a void or a gulf. And I love this because right before it is this little Greek word eu, and there's a little K on it in this text. And it is the strongest, one of the strongest negatives in the New Testament. So when God is saying here that your labor is not in vain, he's telling you that everything you do that's in him, in the Lord, not only is it not in vain, but it is pressing the kingdom of God further and further to the goal where God himself will be glorified and all of the saints brought home to worship him. Not in vain. See, without God, there's an emptiness. Vain leaves us with a gulf, leaves us with a hole in our souls that nothing can fill. And the world tries so hard. With everything under the sun, they try to fill that emptiness. But God says, no, only in me, only in the Son, only in the Spirit can you find that rest, find that joy, find that peace. Only in the Lord will your labor not be in vain. So church, I hope that encourages you, that everything you do, on whatever level your labor is, that if it's for the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not in vain. There is no emptiness in your life or soul. You instead now have everything in God. And I really do. I hope that encourages you. It certainly encouraged me as I was dealing with the, uh, the death of this person. And, and I, will, I will tell this little story about Mr. Weber. Um, he was pastor to some. He was coach Weber to me. That's how I met him. Uh, in 2017, we lost three students from the student ministry here at Joppa in uh, the same amount of months. I buried a young man named John who died in the river, um, who I never met. His parents were associated with us at the time, but I never met him. Um, I first learned his name on a Thursday. I preached his memorial that Saturday. He was in an urn on the table here in front of you. The next month, Alex Cangelosi was accidentally killed in a firearm accident. I got the news when I was at the beach on vacation. I rushed home, preached his funeral that, that weekend as well. A month later, we are having our fall D now. And it's the same event that I'm having tomorrow night. And I had 35 kids here and got the phone call. Um, from Pastor Robin and Kevin Davis, that Keely Young, one of our students, was riding her bike before the D-Now and was killed in a car accident. And so I had to tell 35 kids that their friend and their new friend had just been accidentally killed. And I remember I the kids were out here. I hadn't told them yet. I got the news. I went back to a Sunday school room. It was Jim's Sunday school room. And I put my head against the wall and said, Lord, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can get through this. And this is the text that was brought to my mind. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And I bring that up about Coach Weber dying because we had a two memorials, one at the school for her and one here at Joppa. The one at the school, Coach Weber was supposed to speak at that one. And, and I went to the memorial simply for the family. But when he realized that 
uh, I was there. He said, you were her youth pastor. You need to speak and encourage these kids and gave up that speaking spot. And for pastors, it's not easy to do. When you've prepared a message, when you've been allocated to speak, it's not easy to give that up. But he did graciously because she went to this church and her friends were here. And I've always appreciated that about him. Um, If you knew him in the community or maybe knew his name, um, that's my personal experience. And uh, I might have disagreed with him on a little theology, but um, I truly believe that he is walking streets of gold right now with the Lord. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So I hope that encourages you. Um, it certainly encouraged me this week. And uh, death has no victory. What you have in Christ, nobody can take away. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Lord, I pray for the families who are hurting this week, Lord, certainly the Weber family, who has lost both a mother and a father in less than a month. Lord, for the prayer requests we've heard, for those who have cancer, Lord, for the woman who is going to make a decision about her treatment, Lord, we pray for trainings. We pray for our youth event this weekend. We pray for the fall festival. We, we pray, Lord, for the one service that we're coming back together. Lord, all these things have been sought through careful prayer by the people of this church. Lord, I've said it again, and I'll say it again. This church it has blessed me immensely, especially through this pandemic. Not a single cry of desperation, not a single complaint. Lord, they have labored in the name of your Son, Lord, with joy. And it is a joy to be with them as they do this. Lord, I thank you for everything that you give us. And I ask you now, Lord, to bless us. Help us pray, Lord, for these requests. And help us know that victory is found only in your Son, Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.